Hi, I'm Chinny. And I'm Astrid. And welcome to It's a Continent, the podcast that widens access to African history. We're also the co-authors of the book by the same name. You can find out more information about us on itsacontinent.com. So we're here to challenge the common misconception that Africa is a country and appreciate the identity of each nation. And through each episode, we'll be exploring key historical moments which have shaped the continent. Hello and welcome to another episode of It's a Continent. How's it going? Yeah, we are back with in 2023. Oh yeah, <laughs> I keep on having to be like, no, it is actually 2023. I still write 2022 on stuff, but no, by the time this comes out, it's February. We are firmly, you know, the trial month is over. We are now officially in 2023. Yeah, we can't take it back. It's well on its way. I feel like the bags <laughs> under my the bags under my eyes are they are getting I'm thinking it's time to get creeps because yeah (laughs) yeah yeah, no honestly it's become like let me find a decent eye cream because wow wow it's not looking good (laughs) but um yeah no we are back this is the second half of season six and let's do this this week we're in Chad for African Pride where Delphine Dijrabe one of the first female lawyers in her country, has won the Martin Ennals Award for Human Rights Defenders. In a statement, the award jury chair, Hans Tulin, said, Courage, passion and determination to bring the voice of the voiceless to the international arena, despite the ongoing, sometimes life-threatening challenges they endure, was the winning factor between Delphine and two other winners. Jailed Kashmiri rights activist Kurum Parvez and Feliciano Reina, a human rights activist from Venezuela. The awards ceremony will take place in Geneva on the 16th of February. For over 30 years, Delphine Dijrabe challenged authorities to secure basic rights for all Chadians, including the right to life, justice, freedom of opinion, food, education, and health, a statement by the organizers said. She's also renowned for initiating the prosecution of Chad's former dictator, Hissene Habre, who was convicted for war crimes after 14 years in 2016. Wow, Delphine is out here securing basic rights in every single area you could possibly think of. And bringing down a former dictator. And bringing, yeah. We're noting that down, potential next episode. (laughs) But no, this is such good. And also to be the first female lawyer in her country, honestly. Yeah, no, Um, that is... Yeah, we love to see it. We love it. So this week's topic is about another incredible African woman who fought ardently for her belief in independence from imperial power. You may not have come across Andre Bluon's name before, which may be because of her status as a woman. We know history is not kind to African women. We're going through different countries this week, from Belgian Congo to Guinea and the eventual Democratic Republic of Congo. So you decided to do three countries in one episode, Jenny. <laughs> Look, this is how colonialism just blurs, blurs yeah, the, just, okay. you know, the boundaries between countries. So now we're talking about several. Andre Bluon was born in 1921, just over 100 years ago, to Josephine, a 14-year-old Banziri girl from the Quango region, and a French colonial businessman, Pierre Gerbilat, who was in his 40s. If you were a child of a white father and a black mother, you'd be placed in a boarding school, separated from the other black children, and receive a rudimentary education by mainly being taught how to sew. 
I feel like rudimentary education. It's being <laughs> taught how to sew. It's the only skill you it's need. A, it's a value. Yeah, it's the only. This skill is the you equivalent. Need, so it's the, it's wow. the equivalent of training in cyber. So you know this. Fatima mm. <laughs> is retraining in sewing. <laughs> Yeah, at a basic level, you just need to be able to sew. That'll get you through everything in life. You know, not not the ability to read or write, but hey. Oh, yeah, no, who needs that? It was a deliberate effort, really, to hold certain groups uh, back from progressing in society. Yeah, no, definitely. Orphanages were built to hide evidence of European crimes of men taking advantage of African women. So essentially what happened here in this case, Mm. in her autobiography, Bluant referred to this as an orphanage prison and a punishment for being born of a white father and a black mother. Of course, the orphanage embodied the contradictions seen in racial ideologies of Europeans and the ideas of assimilation. Colonizers saw those of mixed heritage as superior to Africans and wanted to create good servants in what they termed a third species intermediate race. So, sorry, this is used to describe human beings. Mm-hmm. A third, a third species. as if it's some kind of bird like it's just very just the and it's the fact that she herself recognized that she I think you said she describes it as a punishment she recognized like her being placed in that orphanage was a sign of a punishment because actually of who she, because of her identity yeah I note as well it's always between a black woman and a white man just to show the sort of power dynamics behind these kind of relationships that you know resulted in these children colonizers saw those of mixed heritage as superior to africans and wanted to create good servants in what they termed a third species intermediate race that would be complicit in european conquest but remain in contact with the local population The ultimate plan of colonial authorities was to arrange marriages to mixed heritage men and the couples would live in a segregated village. This was because authorities believed that if the children had a happy childhood but were forced to become labourers in adulthood, they would become potential communists. So this is how desperate they didn't want people to turn to communism. Just give people unhappy childhoods because then they wouldn't become communists. (laughs) Okay, cool. The girls in the orphanages were served rotten food and regularly went to bed hungry. Their European fathers often abandoned them and visits from their mothers could only happen with their father's permission. Again, that's that like power dynamics in play, isn't it? Your mom can't visit you unless your dad gives permission. Like, the dad that abandoned you, mind. The, yeah. It's like... Yeah, must have been such a lonely existence. By age 17, Audrey had had enough and refused to accept an arranged marriage. She went on to meet a Belgian man, Roger Cerise, a company director. He refused to recognise their daughter, Rita, but provided her financial support. Blouin then went on to have a son, René, with a Frenchman, Charles Groots. Charles adored Rita, Blouin's daughter from a previous relationship, and recognised his son. The fact, very fact that he reckoned, wow, we're really... He was a stepdad who stepped up, okay? Ste- uh, man, oh, <laughs> no, oh. <laughs> Did you just... Okay. Have you not seen the t-shirts? Yeah, I've seen those. I've seen, oh, there's a, there's a couple of people. No, no, let me, let me not get into my... <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe calling people out. Let me not do that. <laughs> yeah, let's um, not do that. Yes. Um, but... You oh at least he also recognized his own son. 
this is not giving yeah. you two it's your child i'm sorry two people contributed to the kid yeah. coming here however after audrey and charles got married racism persisted charles didn't allow audrey's black mother josephine into their home audrey wrote that he wouldn't allow black people into his living room except for domestic staff okay so i adore you i adore your children and my child but as for your mom (laughs) and the only people allowed are just domestic staff that again just shows just how entrenched even with charles we're not i'm not clapping charles but yeah we're not we're not we're not but you're giving us a little bit of hope for recognizing your own son as well as your stepdaughter but now no it just goes to show how entrenched the the colonialism and racism was that like this man mm. thought it was perfectly fine to you know marry uh you know a mixed heritage woman but as soon as a black person shows up he's like oh you know like no this is too it's, much it's it's a hard no which yeah. it, it just goes to show like how insidious it is that like, how can you sort of love somebody but not it just doesn't really make any sense and i don't think he I don't know, it just doesn't recognise the contradiction here. Like No. No. The Renee later became unwell from malaria and Queenie Law prevented individuals of African ancestry from receiving appropriate medication. Even after Audrey tried her best to advocate for her toddler son, he was still denied life-saving treatment as the French colonial administration insisted that Queenie medication was only for Europeans. And this is wild because Renee would have probably been quite light skinned, seeing as he was a child of a white man and, you know, a mixed race woman. Mm, yeah. So it doesn't, the fact that they said African ancestry, not not black people, just goes to show In, the lens. Yeah, Africa, really? Yeah. I'm sorry, let's go back to all of you and then we'll see, we'll, we'll find the one some drop. Africa. Yeah, literally mm-hmm. one drop because... It, it doesn't not to say that I understand if <laughs> you know what I mean like but the fact mm. that they've gone to the lens of ancestry length, not even yeah. if you are black yeah no I, I see what you mean Audrey counts this incident as the point at which she was politicized when she lost her son she finally saw the pattern connecting my own path with that of my countrymen and knew I must act in her words Colonialism was no longer a matter of my own maligned fate, but a system of evil whose tentacles reached into every phase of African life. And also another thing to add about Charles is that he didn't even let Josephine visit her grandson, um, saying she'll rot his flesh. Not the illness, not malaria. Where was his advocating for treatment for his son, please? Mm. His son is dying because of racism. And... Racism has also blocked him from allowing the grandmother to visit her son. Interesting. It didn't even politicize. He wasn't like, oh, yeah. yeah where, actually, where's his rage? Where's his where's outrage? His rage? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> baffling. Yeah. Baffling. And also, Josephine was banned from uh, attending the funeral as well. So it just, again, just goes to show how deep and how entrenched colonialism was intertwined with racism. Um, mm. For something such as like quinine, a life-saving medication to be banned for those who are actually from the country is just unspeakable to me. Was only for Europeans. It's just it's only for Europeans. That is apartheid. It is Africans as human. Yeah, we're the same. 
Yeah. yeah, no, it's definitely a form of like, you know, separate lives and this whole sort of concept of apartheid and how, you know, people, yeah. that is literally what it is. In the years following her son's death, Luan's activism led her to become an advisor to politicians, with her career seeing her counselling, befriending and lobbying prominent post-independent leaders of Algeria, the DRC, Ivory Coast, Guinea and Ghana. Luan experienced the cruelties in the Belgian Congo and over the river on the French side of the Congo. The extent of racial and gendered violence saw the effects diminish and separate her identity as a daughter and orphanage and as a mother to her son. Yeah, again, just goes to show that it is sort of the, the rules around colonialism and how that plays out in her country. Um, has basically erased her identity, you know, not just taking away her childhood, but also has taken away some parts of her motherhood as well. Yeah, like she's lost... As a result, she lost mm. a child. Mm. In 1952, Blouin married André Blouin, the name she took on, who worked for a diamond mining company, and in her words, escaped the colonialist mentality. But I'm sorry, I don't really know much about that because this man worked for a diamond mining company in Africa. So, I mean, yeah, has he really escaped the colonialism? Escaped the... <laughs> to be honest... I feel like based on her previous experiences, this this is an know, improvement. This somewhat. is an improvement. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it feels like he's escaped. Yeah. Um, but the yeah, bar is a bit of a stretch. Yeah. 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 Non-existent, but hey. yeah. Bluon's husband ended up posted to a mine in French Guinea. And it was here where she met Secutore and became involved in the RDA, the Rassemblement Democratique Africain during the referendum for independence from France. Guinea was the only French territory in Africa that chose independence in 1958, and consequently, they faced the wrath of the French. Blouin was expelled from Guinea by Charles de Gaulle, the French president. A chance meeting in Conakry, Guinea, at the beginning of 1960, saw Blouin overhearing men speak in Lingala, a language she knew from growing up. These men were politicians from the Belgian Congo and wanted to connect with Guinean allies. Antoine Gizenga, leader of the Parti Solidaire Africain, a large political party in Belgian Congo, invited Blouan to work with women in his country. He recalled being surprised, in his words, that a mother of three children, the oldest of whom was already 20 and the youngest four, still had in her the ardent desire to serve the African cause. Although, I have to say, why is it a surprise mm-hmm. that a woman wanted to become involved with involved. this? And also, considering her story and just how much of an imprint it had at every major stage of her life, mm. it's no surprise at all. But I guess there's also obviously an element here of just sexism as well. Yeah, of course. A sprinkling of sexism. It's, uh, it's the norm, unfortunately. Blouin was a gifted speaker and was good at mobilising people. By the end of May 1960, after just one month on the campaign trail, she enrolled 45,000 members in the feminine movement of the African Solidarity, the MFSA. The aims of this group was to make all women, no matter what age, literate, promote an understanding of health and hygiene, combat alcoholism, work for women's rights, work for the protection of the abandoned woman and child, and work for the social progress of the African. The MFSA's political influence grew, with Congolese politicians capitalising on the movement to boost popularity. 
Bluin saw Congolese women as, in her words, crushed between two pitiless stones, the tribal customs in which they were mere chattel to their men, and the education they received from the missions. Women's schooling was woefully inadequate at the time, with cooking, housekeeping, and needlework being the pillars of education. Bluin's movement gave way to a women's crusade. It's really interesting the way that she has described the, the two pitiless stones. Um, yeah. Because we had, you know, the tribal customs, which were prone to you know, sexism, essentially. And then the education received from the missions, i.e. colonialism, which didn't really help or advance the women's cause either. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was to provide, and we can see as well, just the way that colonization was against Bluon, just even from the beginning beginning of her life um and she still maintained that motivation to be like it can be different for these women yeah yeah. obviously I can imagine how much it must have hurt for her not to have had those experiences you know what I mean like from the beginning Mm. I think we said she was was it needle what not yeah sewing basically sewing she was she was yeah that was that was it but actually building the movement the MFSA she was able to actually focus on key areas that mattered for women and making sure that they were you know on an equal footing to men and actually Mm. just getting the basics health and hygiene yeah Um, yeah Antoine Gazenga's party formed a coalition with Patrice Lumumba after Belgian Congo gained independence and became the Democratic Republic of Congo Luan became chief of protocol she became part of Patrice Lumumba's inner circle with the press calling them team Lumumba Bluin The road following independence wasn't smooth. There was an army mutiny and the mineral-rich province of Katanga was seceded. Lumumba appealed to the Soviet Union for help as UN peacekeeping troops didn't intervene in Katanga. It's really nice to see, you know how I love every time we recognise a woman, but I was not aware of her relationship with Patrice Lumumba and how actually Mm. they work together. Mm. And so it's nice to actually see how things were I don't know it's nice to put things together and how it was like coordinated um Mm. between kind of key figures that we are aware of and to see that you know Lumumba was supported by a woman um yeah it's it's yeah you know that phrase I really hate the phrase that talk about oh behind every strong man is an even struggle (laughs) you are really bringing (laughs) that because I'm sorry that's what Michelle Obama was just always (laughs) but um yeah, it's annoying because they say that, but look how Bluon's been forgotten mm. in the grand scheme of things. Obviously not taking anything away from Lumumba because, you know, what he did was incredible. However, it's just a shame that, you know, Bluon hasn't had, she hasn't been afforded this same legacy. Legacy, yeah. Considering at the time they put her and Lumumba sort of on the same footing, they were doing, you know, absolute bits for their country, but only one of them was remembered. Yeah. But it's nice. This is why we exist. This is why, yeah, this is why we're here. (laughs) So this activity gained the attention of the West, particularly as Bluon had a strong anti-colonial stance. An American, Herbert Weiss, was fascinated by Bluon, saying, who is this woman? She's wearing very fine perfumes. She has an air of Paris about her. And how come she speaks fluent Kikongo? So (laughs) the way she has an air of Paris about her, does it? what a ridiculous thing to say wow okay she's wearing fine perfumes why she can't what's hmm? who's who are the only people allowed to wear fine perfumes yeah exactly (laughs) we're not allowed to wear perfumes Mm. okay go on herbert give up tell us (laughs) honestly 
Belgians began spreading word that Bruan was a communist trained infiltrator and even a witch. When asked if she was a communist, Bruan's response was, let small fools call me what they like. I am an African nationalist. I'm glad she came back with that response, to be honest. But the problem is, especially with women and, you know, once we're reach i was gonna say over 25s ala simon cowell but you know <laughs> i don't <laughs> believe that over 25 is old anymore thanks for x factor for corrupting myself no 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 but let's I'm correct just, ourselves yeah i'm gonna correct myself because the problem is once a woman reaches an age people then start thinking oh a witch oh you know what i mean like all these sort of things, things um, yeah and yeah it's just basically another form of sexism ageism and you know how it's compounded um as a woman the Eisenhower administration was worried about Bluon's supposed communist links. The New York Times referred to Bluon as an advocate of extreme African nationalism. According to a Belgian official, Bluon was a beautiful woman, but also a dangerous woman, perhaps the most dangerous in all of Africa. So again, there were just comments about her looks and critics often belittled her achievements, claiming that, of course, she must have slept her way to influence. Another trope that we see, yeah. No one actually asking what has she been through? What is her story for her to be such an impactful and driven woman? Like, why does she want to make a difference? But, oh, no, she's... Oh, she must have, yeah. beautiful. She wears perfume. Yeah. She wears... Who is this woman? Who is this woman? There's just... Yeah. This narrative that they're trying to create. And it's really not sticking and as you said like it's really good that she is you know defending herself um she shouldn't have to and she's doing an amazing do you see what and I also think like I guess it's the sense of threat right that she Mm. places because she's making an actual tangible difference and probably really supporting women in terms of like understanding their rights as well Mm. and so that also is in conflict with what the colonizers are doing at the time and yeah you know you were talking like 60s African countries are getting independent and there's still those <clears throat> colonized <laughs> countries that are struggling to let go so having yeah. someone who is really about getting women to really mobilizing own, them yeah, yeah and mobilizing them yeah it's it's a huge threat at a time mm. where they're having to you know leave African nations alone but really struggling to so yeah Mm, mm, mm. a coup organized with the CIA's blessing later that year culminated in Lumumba being overthrown and later murdered Bruan then became a target and was expelled when the Congolese opposition took up arms against the country's military dictator Joseph Mobutu Bruan became their spokesperson from Algiers and then Brazzaville where she was sent on a humanitarian mission by President Ahmed Ben Bella to help children orphaned by the rebellions. In 1973, Bluan divorced and lived in Paris, where she opened her apartment to opposition figures and revolutionaries passing through the city. Bluan was committed to her beliefs to the end, even refusing to denounce Secretore of Guinea as he began imprisoning and killing his political opponents. And this is the cycle that we do see with independence uh, movements where, you know, the very same person yeah. that brought independence for the country suddenly sort of um, crosses the despot threshold, as it were. But even so, she did refuse to denounce them. So some people criticised her for this. Yeah, which there was, I don't understand why she didn't to that point. Do you know what I mean? Because mm. all of a sudden he's just 
gone on, gone left. It's all yeah. gone left. Like, but I guess it's that maybe potential belief that you know you hope that that person isn't okay. Well, he is imprisoning and killing people. Yeah, so I mean, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah it's quite. Not, yeah, it's yeah. It's let's quite, not be around yeah, the bush. Can't be bush. <laughs> like it's, we can't. You, you know. By the mid 1980s, Bluan became unwell, receiving treatment for lymphoma. She ended up despondent over the oppression that prevailed despite the so-called end of colonialism. She was depressed and found it difficult to continue making ends meet. She stopped treatment and died on the 9th of April, 1986, age 65. Andre Bluan's figure remains on the periphery of historical narratives that privileges the founding Pan-African fathers of African independence, not to minimise the contributions of the Kwame Nkrumahs, Thomas Sankara and Patrice Lumumba and Julius Nyerere, when was the last time we saw a woman amplified in the same way? Exactly. And that's the thing. I think it's also in the title, Founding Forefathers. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's very clear that it's only men that are highlighted in this capacity. But, you know, we always make an effort to cover uh, women on the show. So because they're just not recognised in the same breath, unfortunately. Yeah. Even though she moved to Paris she was still very much open to revolutionaries and supporting. And I think that's, yeah, that's just testament to the difference that she wanted to mm. see and be a part of when it, when it came to the African continent. No, definitely. It's incredible how she used her really sort of difficult past and upbringing mm. and channeled that, especially through the death of her son, through a racist law. And channel that to the betterment of others, particularly women. So definitely really admirable. Nice. It's just nice to be able to add another African woman on the list of just, yes. I'm yes. fully aware of Andre Bloin and what she, do you see what I mean? It's just, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a nice feeling. Warm yeah, vibe. no, it's, it, we love to see it. We love to see it. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I like this one. That is a story of Andre Bloin. Uh, thank you for listening. And you can find us on Twitter at It's a Continent, on Instagram at It's a Continent Pod, and also on our website, uh, It's a Continent.com. And we also have a book available, also called It's a Continent. It's a because... Continent. <laughs> Why not? Why not? Why not? Uh, Consistency. <laughs> yeah, we are consistent. What can we say? That is available now um, in major retailers, bookstores etc yeah so that is us done this week and we will see you in two weeks time see you then bye yeah, bye <laughs>